Welcome to Legal Wellbeing in Action, a podcast series of the New Mexico Wellbeing Committee. There's much more to come as we continue our focus on the What a Healthy Legal Community Looks Like campaign, and the campaign itself aims to understand the state of well-being in legal organizations, enlist local leaders to help define what well-being looks like for their populace, identify priorities for the community, measure, evaluate, and improve. So for the month of December and our last month in 2022, we are joined by Dr. Amanda Parker, the Director of Equity and Justice Program at state at the State Bar of New Mexico. And with us today is Mr. Gavin Alexander, the Wellness Director of Jackson Lewis PC, and who is also a member of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing. This episode will explore how important it is to recognize the specific lived experiences of legal professionals from underrepresented and historically excluded populations, and how the factors affecting their well being can differ dramatically. Our speakers also note the importance of acknowledging persistent racial and ethnic disparities in our communities. From here, I'm going to let our guests take it away. To our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to Legal Wellbeing in Action. If you'd like to leave us feedback or to continue the conversation on well-being, please email us at well at sbnm.org. We hope you enjoy. Thank you, Tanessa, for that introduction, and thank you for having us on Legal Wellbeing in Action. Today's episode is about the crossover with diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and well-being as part of the campaign of what a healthy legal community looks like. I am Amanda Parker. I am the Director of Equity and Justice at the State Bar of New Mexico. I've started to get to know members over the last year, um, and I'm working on equity inclusion efforts within the legal field in New Mexico. But today I have with me, and I am so excited to be joined by Gavin Alexander, who's the Wellness Director at Jack- Jackson Lewis PC in Boston, and I'll let, you, I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Thank you so much, Amanda, and I am thrilled to be here, and thank you, Tanessa, for inviting me to join uh, today's episode. Yeah, so my name is Gavin Alexander. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a lawyer and a advocate and a bisexual male cisgender white person who suffers from severe chronic depression and suicidal ideation, so that's a lot of mouthful about who I am in terms of my identities. Uh, In terms of my background, I graduated from Harvard Law School in 2012, magna cum laude. I then clerked for the former Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, uh, and then worked as a corporate associate for a very, very large law firm for around seven years before I transitioned into the wellness work I'm doing now. I'm a... uh, member of the Institute for Wellbeing and Laws, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, the Boston Bar Association's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Standing Committee, the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs, DEI Committee. I do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work specifically in the lawyer mental health and well-being space. So I'm thrilled to be here to talk about that exact topic with you today. Great. Well, we'll get started with one of my favorite questions, which is, what are you finding to be the greatest challenge in your work? The greatest challenge in my work, uh, there uh, there are a lot of challenges in the work, but a lot of it starts from having people acknowledge even what the state 
of well-being and mental health in the legal profession is. And then once they've even acknowledged that there is an issue with mental health and well-being in the legal profession, a lot of the community focuses on the fact that the overwhelming majority of lawyers are cisgender, straight, white people, uh, largely men, um, but even that is starting to shift. But even if you just focus on cisgender, straight, white people um, without disabilities, uh, that group is the vast majority of lawyers. So when we talk about even lawyer well-being, it starts to look pretty universal. And we start trying to dig up solutions to stress, depression, and anxiety, and all of these issues that absolutely affect the uh, tons of people in the community and uh, legal professionals. But we start to forget that different people from different backgrounds and different identities experience additional specific burdens and stressors that affect their mental health and well-being while practicing law. And those added burdens relating to their identities, relating to their background, relating to their lived experiences, very much inform and affect their ability to both survive and ultimately thrive in the work they're doing and in the jobs they have. So how do you meet that challenge of getting people, once they're on board with well-being, to actually see that greater issue of the demographics and really the vast differences in experiences and in the work I do, just being very concerned by the mental health impact, particularly of our lawyers of color, of our LGBTQ plus lawyers and our lawyers with disabilities. And so how do you start to get that door pried open? Because the well-being community really doesn't, doesn't really address that very head on, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, we start, for me, starting to pry that door open is really a two-pronged approach. You have to change minds and you have to change hearts. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people focus on one or the other, but I really feel you have to do both to get this message across and to start hitting that acknowledgement piece, right? Because you can't start fixing a problem until you acknowledge that there is a problem. Uh, so for to, to address those minds and hearts, um, minds, we start with data and demographics and research and numbers and uh, all of that research that we can conduct at a higher level. And then on the hearts piece, I think a lot of it involves actually amplifying the voices of people from the co specific communities you're trying to support and elevating their lived experiences, helping them speak truth to power, helping speak what they've actually experienced. So it's not just X percent of Black lawyers have experienced microaggressions in XYZ courthouse. It's I walked into a courthouse and every day for a week I was told, are you the defendant? Are you a translator? Things like that. And, and people think that's just a, oh, it's just a DEI issue. But when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in law, what, we, what I, a lot of my work is, is to say, when someone is repeatedly asked over and over when they enter in a courtroom, if they're a translator, how do you think that affects their ability to do their job well, to believe in themselves, to believe that they belong in this work and to not go into a state of anxiety, stress, depression, uh, and all of these mental health issues that are uh, affecting so many in the community. So for the research piece, um, I can tell you a lot of organizations uh, around the country have started looking into uh, both what are the demographics of the legal profession, because frankly, even that 
basic question has not been answered for way too long. Here in Massachusetts, uh, we did not collect any demographic data about the Massachusetts bar until 2020. And we literally just published the first year's information on that uh, around a month, month and a half ago, where we were able to identify that. And so it, that, that information is now collected as part of the lawyer registration process under a new rule promulgated by our Supreme Court that all lawyers, in order to maintain their registration, must complete the attorney and demographic law, uh, at, attorney demographic and law practice survey. And people are able to click prefer not to answer on most of the questions. So we're not forcing people to disclose identity information that they don't want to, but we're at least forcing them to click through the survey. Um, and the results we were able to identify that here in Massachusetts, a very progressive state that prides itself on trying to move the needle forward on diversity in so many different respects. Uh, among lawyers, 2% of lawyers identify as Black, 2% identify as Hispanic. And if you compare that to the general population in Massachusetts, I believe 9% uh, of the Massachusetts population is Black and 11% is Hispanic. And that's just a, a couple select highlights uh, from that report and from those uh, backgrounds. But so we started with trying to identify what is the demographic gap in representation between general population and lawyers. Um, and then we also simultaneously on that hearts piece, um, sorry, for further on the research actually, um, we worked with a organization called NORC out of the University of Chicago, which, which is a research mm -hmm. organization. Um, and they helped us design, and they helped Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers of Massachusetts. So the Lawyer Assistance Program here in Massachusetts uh, worked with the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing. I should have started with that. I'm a member of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, and I was their fellow for two years. Um, but so the Lawyer Assistance Program worked with the Standing Committee and NORC to develop a survey that also went out to all lawyers voluntarily, uh, not mandatory. Um, to assess well-being uh, of the legal profession. And we did so, and we asked those same demographic questions again, so we could ask and track, like, what was the well-being differentiators between different demographic populations? Uh, and the results of that uh, research are likely going to be coming out early next year. Um, but I can tell you, as you'd expect, um, mental health and well-being is worse among lawyers from underrepresented communities here in Massachusetts than it is for those in overrepresented communities. So that was that research piece. Um, and on that hearts piece and lived experience piece, I mean, I started this work by telling my own story. That's how I got into lawyer mental health and well-being. I'm not just a lawyer who graduated near the top of my class from Harvard Law School and went on to all these big fancy um, titles on my resume. I tried to kill myself in 2016. And I talk about that openly and honestly now. And this, the, the story there is really that I felt comfortable enough to come out as bisexual when I was 16. I didn't feel comfortable enough to tell anyone I was suffering from symptoms that I believed were depression until I was 30. Wow. And, and so I didn't get any help or treatment or care of any kind until it was way too late for me and I attempted to end my own life. So that's my story. And I'm a bisexual. And but nevertheless, I'm also incredibly privileged as a cisgender white man. So if if that was my experience, a lot of my once I started telling my story, 
others started telling me their stories because I was so open and authentic about what I'd been through. Others people started telling me what they'd been through. And I started hearing predominantly from lawyers from underrepresented groups about what they were going through and what they had experienced. And so in my work with the Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, we went out to the affinity bar associations of Massachusetts, all of them, and we held individual meetings with each separate affinity bar. And the meetings were led by the leadership of that affinity bar, not by us. We were just there to listen. And we said, tell us what you're experiencing. Tell us what it's like to be a lawyer from your community in Massachusetts in 2020. And we released the results of that report in early 2021. Um, but it was this a report summarizing the affinity bar town hall meetings. And it just showed the hearts piece. It was not data. It was 120 lawyers telling their stories, telling what actually happened to them on a day-to-day -day basis uh, while practicing law. And that combined with the research was able to get us a lot of traction here in Massachusetts among the judiciary, among the legislature, among the regulatory agencies, and among the legal employers themselves to finally say, oh, I guess it's still really bad here. And we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing the power of that story and really insisting that there be spaces where people can tell the truth about their lives. And that's part of, to me, the health of a community is of being truth-telling, right? And I think too, the, even just the burden of, um, you know, taking 15 extra years to be honest about your mental state, which could have just led to a loss, a terrible loss. And I think that that is the, how we create more of these spaces because in this profession to me is a concern I have as well. I don't come from the legal profession. I come from education and academia and I, I look, came here looking at the data and saying, wow, all of this happens in plain sight. But even just culturally as a lawyer, there's this idea of stoicism and not and working and being a workhorse and carrying the trauma and carrying the burden and all these other kinds of things and success at all costs. And how do we change that culture? And I mean, it's, you're right, it's, it's hearts and minds and then the recognition of privilege um as well on top of that and so that kind of gets into one of the things i wanted to talk about because we are two white people here talking about doing dei work and um there is a place it's always something i'm navigating and questioning and thinking about um but what is it about where whites should be within these conversations um i think we all know that racism is is um, is something that people participate in need to constantly be mindful of and teaching how to be mindful of that would not just be bad, would not just improve things for people of color, but actually being mindful of who you are and knowing who you are as a critically conscious person in the world is good for you too. So trying to build that. But what are some of the things that you think white folks should be doing right now? Uh, I think white just like folks, one or two. <laughs> yeah. What should white folks be doing right now? A whole what do you lot. Think we should, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll try to uh, more specifically talk about sort of what I do as a white person uh, mm -hmm. trying to uh, address racism, address homophobia and transphobia, address uh, ableism, all of these things, um, and the intersectionality among them. Uh, so for me, I focus both on content and on process. 
And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough. As a white person in this work, A, you hit the nail on the head. A, what is my role? B, how do I do it? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what my role is, I believe it is amplifying my own voice when my lived experience matters. So as a queer man with mental health issues, that I can amplify my own voice. Um, when I'm talking about other demographic, demographics and populations, my role is not to step in and save them as a white knight, empowering myself and bragging about how great I am and, and all of the achievements I have in terms of DEI. My goal is to get them into the room and be heard. My goal is to amplify their lived experience, their voice, and if people will listen to them directly, get them to listen to them directly. And if people aren't listening to them directly, get their words from their own mouths and speak them from my position of power and privilege as a uh, higher income cisgender white man. So in terms of the process for that, what I, I have sort of developed a three-step process that I use for myself in my DEI work. Um, and it comes down to first, that listening component. I make sure I create real opportunities for the, pop the specific population in any particular project that I'm trying to support to speak their lived experience openly and honestly. Um, and I, without repercussion, without retaliation, without defensiveness, uh, without saying, without trying to say, oh, that's not what was intended, or we tried to fix that, but just to hear, just mm -hmm. to listen and say, that happened. I thank you for sharing what happened to you. So that listening is first. Then I try to do some work on my own. So if it's a report of some kind, I will take a crack at drafting it. If it's a presentation of some kind, I will take a crack at drafting that too, even if I'm not going to be the presenter. Um, because one of the critical failures, I think, a lot of people, uh, white people engaging in any sort of DEI work or even just trying to be supportive allies, uh, one of the critical failures we do is we say, well, you have this great idea and we want to hear from you. Please do more labor for us to, mm. to, uh, to dismantle your own oppression. And by the way, we're not going to pay you for that work or give you any credit. We're just giving you the opportunity to speak. Um, uh, and, and to our to our population without compensation or recognition. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of that, obviously. I, I do try in any instance where I'm asking for um, uh, BIPOC communities or other types of communities. And when I say BIPOC, it stands for the acronym Black, Indigenous, or People of Color. Um, when I'm asking members of those communities, I do try to compensate them uh, for their time and effort. So that's one thing I strongly encourage any of you listeners to do is even if you are only offer able to offer a small amount of money, mm -hmm. offer something because this you are paying for expertise. You are paying for truth. You are paying for labor of people preparing for a panel or presentation or something like that. So first, try to compensate. Second, try to do as much of the work you can yourself rather than forcing them to do all the labor for you. So I talked about that Affinity Bar Town Hall report. First, we listened, we had those meetings, we designed them and we helped the leadership of each Affinity Bar run it themselves so we could li just listen, but we prepared the full sort of agenda and gave them the questions we suggested to ask. Um, and then we, on, on the back end, we didn't say, okay, now write everything up for us from your meeting and send it to us. No, we took a crack at drafting a report. 
um, and collecting all of the information. And then the final step, the third step, is making sure you provide a reasonable and meaningful opportunity to provide feedback, direct feedback, on anything before it is finalized. And I mean that on anything you're doing. If it is a process, if it is a report, if it is a project, if you are trying to design a uh, LGBTQ self-identification policy for your law firm or, or organization, don't just do that without consulting with your LGBTQ uh, attorney or employee resource group. Or if you don't have one of those, just asking your LGBTQ attorneys that you know of if you think that that if they think that this will actually help uh, address the problem you're trying to solve. Um, let their voices be heard. There's a popular statement in the ableism uh, and disabled community, um, uh, the work addressing ableism that says not about us without us. Mm -hmm which that, that's really at the end of the day, before anything is finalized, you wanna make sure that actual population you're trying to support is bought in and agrees with what you're trying to do. So th that's sort of my three-step process as a white man for doing what I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, the different ways in which of def you know definitely bringing people in, of amplifying voices. Um, yeah, it's a long, it's a lot, I think one of the things that happened after 2020 is that with the reckoning and the new renewed interest is that a lot of people did not know how to not lead in these spaces. And so there were workplaces where people had been, you know, doing this work, quietly organizing at their workplace quietly. And then suddenly leadership that was white comes in and says, I'm going to start a diversity committee. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you know as though that had not been going on for a long time and I think it just takes a long time to um to unlearn that you're not going to be in charge of all of these different spaces and there are spaces where absolutely white leadership is needed in race spaces um but also spaces where of really learning that you can't take those dominant traits into into this work um, and form genuine relationships with people of color. So, um, so talking about it, I think it's just two people, we don't talk about it enough. Um, before but probably, one, before huh? you move on, yeah. before you move on, just something you just said, just really, I want to highlight, which is sort of being in spaces with, or establishing relationships with people from different backgrounds from yourself. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do, and I cannot encourage this more emphatically is try to go to events and be in spaces where white people are the minority. Mm -hmm. Like do that as often as you can. I am a dues paying, I am myself personally, a dues paying member of every single Massachusetts Affinity Bar Association. And I go to events for the Black Lawyers Association, the Hispanic Lawyers Association. The, I'm going to the South Asian Bar Association's gala on Saturday night. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm taking my time out of my Saturday night to do that because I believe in it, because I want to support it, and because the more I can be in spaces where I am not the majority, the more I can actually learn, because mm -hmm. I, I think you said it really well, is people from these communities aren't going to be generally speaking openly and honestly when they are the minority in the room. When there is one Black lawyer in a room full of 25 to, to 100 white lawyers, do you think they're going to be completely open and honest? or they're gonna hold back because they know they're not among friends. 
Um, mm -hmm. so, some few people in the audience might be true and uh, uh, striving to enact true and genuine allyship, but a lot of them might not be. So I try to be in those spaces as often as I can, because I find that's where I hear a lot of truth. Um, and I establish a lot of respect and credibility for myself as someone who does actually care about these people by going to things that they care about and being in their spaces and not making it about me, just going and having a good time and shutting up and listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have been encouraging when people ask, you know, one of the things I do say, I encourage you show up to events. If you show up to the law school on an event for students of color, you're showing up to support. You show up where you will, where you say, this is important. We're here. We're here to support this effort. And um, a lot of folks will say, oh, I don't feel comfortable, whatever. Well, it's not about you. Just start showing up. You know, it's just start showing up, <laughs> start working on this and taking the risks that it takes, which, you know, I always think about this one, you know, the statistic about how often, you know, they were trying to collect friendship data on um, whites and people of color. And they did find whites were over reporting that they had friends of color. And there's a lot of data and ways to pick through this. They had to change the way they collected the data to get something more accurate. But to me, the important piece I pluck out of that is the deep longing for that connection. Because there wouldn't be a dishonesty or an exaggeration if there were not a longing for that connection and for this societal change. And so, you know, building on all of that in these spaces is what I'm, I'm always thinking about is that the longing's there. So how do we, how do we get it to, to work? Um, if you ever are nervous about going into one of these spaces uh, because you feel like you're you might be intruding or something, just ask ahead of ask. time. Mm -hmm. Reach out to one of the organizers and say, hey, is this really meant to be a space only for mm -hmm. people of that community? Or would you welcome someone like me to show up and just attend and be part of the community? They'll tell you honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, <laughs> the simple question of the simple action of asking can get us a lot of different information, right? Um, I, so other things I wanted to think about, there's so much I wanted to talk about with you, but I was thinking, so what do you think, cause we're talking about all these different settings. What do you think that law firms themselves are getting right or wrong on their, on their new actions on DEI? So, yeah, totally. Um, and I should say, I should have said this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. Uh, I am speaking uh, today on my own behalf, not on behalf of my firm, Jackson Lewis, or on behalf of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing. So especially when I talk about what law firms are doing right and wrong when it comes to DEI, these are my own views and opinions and not anyone else's. Um, I think a lot of law firms are heavily focused, over-focused on the D in DEI. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And law firms tout how great they are at diversity, equity, and inclusion solely by focusing on what is their percentage of lawyers mm -hmm. who come from underrepresented communities. Um, first off, if you, there are a lot, there are a lot of issues with that data overall to begin with. First is, are what are they calling a diverse lawyer, quote unquote. Um, are they including are they including straight, cisgender, fully abled white women in that calculation? Mm -hmm. Yes, though that population is is underrepresented and has been historically marginalized for a really long time. But if you're trying to convince the black population, uh, a black law student, uh, to come to your firm, 
I'm not sure how materially relevant it is that you have a whole bunch of white women in leadership roles. Um, so focusing solely on the data, if you just say we are 40 something percent uh, lawyers from underrepresented communities, breaking up that data, disaggregating it is really, really important um, because at that point you're able to see what are your actual gaps. Um, are you, do you have tons, have you done a great job at advertising and, and promoting uh, black leadership, but do you have no one from the Hispanic or LGBTQ communities? Mm -hmm. Really acknowledging, um, so even if you're just looking at the diversity, uh, disaggregating data, disaggregating those populations is really important, or even just being very specific about what you're including when you calculate uh, those numbers. Second, going beyond those numbers, I mean, you can slice it up a whole bunch of different ways. A lot of firms are doing great on recruiting, terrible at retention, mm -hmm. and even worse at promotion uh, to partnership, to equity partnership, to leadership roles. Few, last I heard, which was this year, fewer than 1% of uh, equity partners at law firms in the United States are Black women. Mm -hmm. That's a really problematic statistic from a diversity standpoint. But uh, going back to D is, for me, I view diversity as the outcome, not the starting point. If you create a law firm environment that is truly equitable and inclusive, diversity will solve for itself because people will want to come and want to stay. Um, so I view uh, focusing on creating a culture and a system and policies and structures that are supportive of uh, uh, lawyers and legal professionals from underrepresented and historically excluded populations as the first step you should be working on. Um, rather than hiring a whole bunch of lawyers from underrepresented communities who get to your firm, realize it has a pretty unpleasant culture for them and they leave. And frankly, you've done them even more harm than you might have done by not hiring them to begin with because they started and maybe it was their first law job and they experienced a significant amount of bias and now they don't want to practice at all ever again. Um, so I focus uh, a lot of my work is on trying to come up with ideas and uh, ideas for structures, policies and systems that will promote uh, equity and inclusion so that we can result in a culture where uh, lawyers from these communities we want to be uh, represented equitably will want to come and want to stay. Um, I know in the, so part of my work with the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing is we've gathered four working groups together over the course of the past year uh, to design four of these lists of these concrete structural ideas to improve the well-being of lawyers from these communities in different sectors. So we'll have a list from uh, of ideas for large firms, a list of ideas for small and medium-sized firms, a list of ideas for public sector lawyers, and a list of ideas for private in-house counsel. Um, because each of those sectors has different levers of power, different structures to employ, different carrots and sticks, and incentives and disincentives. Um, and we'll hopefully be publishing those earlier next year. Um, but the goal with those ideas is not to say, have one, have an anti-bias training every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Have train your recruiters uh, once a year on uh, implicit bias. No, that's not working, <laughs> right? Um, no. That has been in the works for a long time and we are not mm -hmm. at the results we need. Uh, and so 
what we're thinking through with these ideas are really structural compensation systems, hiring policies, uh, um, reporting. How do you encourage and what are the policies and processes for reporting an incident of bias or racism or uh, discrimination that happened at your firm? And how are those policies enforced? Mm -hmm. um, really thinking through how do you create a system and structure that protects this community from harm? Um, and the U.S. Surgeon General actually last week or the week before issued a new framework for mental health and well-being in the workplace. And one of the top issues was protection from harm. So when we talk about well-being, we're not just talking about yoga and mindfulness. We're talking about what systems and structures are in place to protect your employees, your lawyers, your associates, your partners, your paralegals, your legal secretaries, how do you protect them from harm? And specifically in the context of this conversation, how do you protect them from the harm that they may experience as a result of their identity or other underrepresented status? Yeah, I think that that is that the idea of the harm that is involved, which isn't, there's so much focus on intention, especially when we do implicit or unconscious bias trainings, which I, I do not do those, they are not effective um, in, in most settings and actually kind of normalize your biases to say, oh, you didn't know, but I could go on about that forever because I'm in the race field and we've never used that framework very much to talk about structural issues. And so to see it really take hold in the legal field has been discouraging to me. Um, because it, it has a stranglehold. And so usually it kind of indicates there's not enough knowledge or background about the issue to understand why that's a problematic thing. But the other thing is the focus is on intention. And so you're training people to focus on their intention in interactions and not the impact. When we talk about the harm, harm leads to suffering, to pain, to the, the, the end result, the threats to well-being that we are talking about. And so that's another thing I think about as I educate within this field is really trying to change that conversation to, okay, let's talk about structural racism and homophobia and sexism and transphobia, the structures, the laws that set these things up, how people internalize them. But to the idea of unconscious is kind of a, I don't know. So anyway, um, no, no, different, I, I, different track, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you generally. Um, I think uh, one of the key lessons for anyone trying to engage in active allyship is the the fundamental lesson is impact over intent. Yes. It does not matter whether you meant to be racist. Um, it literally doesn't. And I talk, I, I talk about this somewhat frequently. Like all of us are engaging in racism like all you ask what white people can do we are all participating in a system that in inherently benefits us over others and that is true just as much true of lawyers and law students as it is for any other community if not more so um, when you look at the demographics of law students coming into the profession and law students passing the bar and passing the character and fitness exam and all of these issues so when you talk about impact you're focusing on the person you're actually trying to support. You are, I started this with talking about the Affinity Bar Town Hall report. All of that was about, tell us how the profession has impacted you. It is not about the 
offender saying, well, I didn't mean to cause that harm, or here are all the things I've done to assure I would never cause that harm, doesn't matter. You caused harm. And that's the sort of lesson I think that is true of, it's true in DEI, it's true in well-being work, it's true in supervision and management skills training. So often I hear about when a person in a position of relative privilege or power um, does something and they are told by someone, either a third party or the direct other person, that harm has occurred, that either I'm, I'm not, let's say someone told me that they just, you know, they assumed I'd love uh, this Broadway musical because they know, you know, I'm queer. <laughs> um, uh, and that, that is a statement that happened to me, by the way, um, uh, in law practice. Um, and I was just like, oh, great. You're definitely a partner I want to work with again. Um, and I told them, I was like, hey, I'm actually a little bit offended by that. Um, you're assuming something about a completely irrelevant trait about my interests and passions just based on something you know about my sexuality. And the person was like, well, oh, that's not what I meant. You know, that's not what I meant. Mm -hmm. And sure, I did actually know that's not what he meant. He did not mean to say all queers like musicals and you are, and now I'm reducing your entire identity to this one sexual orientation demographic I know about you, but that is what he did. Um, and so that's sort of the, the ultimate lesson again is it does not matter. I, I say things that cause harm. I'm an active DEI practitioner. I strive to be a good ally every single day, but there are things I say that cause people harm. I'm, it is entirely possible. I've said something on this podcast episode today that has caused someone harm. And if I were told that that was the case, my response would be, I'm sorry, I will work on that. I will try not to do it again um, and leave it at that, right? The, another key component, and I, I think we're gonna talk about this a little bit is when you're called out as causing harm, how do you not make it about yourself? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you wanna talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great thing to think about of how, how do we account for past harm? How do we, how do we hold ourselves accountable or how do we know when we've been told we've done something wrong not just take responsibility but then also re-engage because people will just go away right they won't come back if they're told the truth and they go this way and there's a whole bunch of things people go to and who they go to for coddling and what they need to hear before they'll feel better but then they won't come back and re-engage and it's like well we i tried but as someone was mean but not really looking at kind of their own cruelty, even if it's passive within most of these situations. And even, you know, the ways, the harm that it causes to just be walking around completely ignorant of your impact, not ignorant of the situ of the, the structures in the situation, but that ignorant of your own impact that you have on others. And that is not easy. And I think that that's another piece of why friendships and critical friendships where you're working these things out with folks have been a major part of my own growth. Um, whether it's been close folks of color or close white folks working on it to people that you do go back to and you do have space to say, I need to talk about my intention here. But that's not the space. That's not every space 
the spaces, you know, the impact is where you need to land and then there's working out. But um, yeah, so what do you think about one of the, what did we talk about in our first conversation? And I think about, um, were we talking about accountability in our conversation of like, what are, what are ways that you think we can be more accountable to the work? Or what do you think of the whole, the, the notion of using call out culture as kind of a way of not engaging these issues? I mean, accountability is, is essential, right? Because mm -hmm. if there is no accountability, then we are just talking and talking and talking and nothing is actually happening. Um, Martin Luther King actually in the letter from the Birmingham jail talked about mm -hmm. the risk of action without accountability mm -hmm. and uh, noted that the, the moderate white person yes. was actually a more risk, uh, greater risk to the black community than the members of the Ku Klux Klan because mm -hmm. all the moderate white population would do is talk and talk and talk and not actually have any accountability, take action and, and wind up burying any chance of action by just saying words. Um, so I think that's a critical lesson for us is if we are just talking, just hosting panels, just hosting podcasts even, just uh, uh, having these events, which are lovely and important because we need to, as we started this conversation with, we need to acknowledge the problem before we can fix the problem. Um, but uh, we have to create accountability because without it, nothing, those systems, those structures, uh, you mentioned, Amanda, they're not changing. And frankly, in the modern state of America, uh, without any accountability, we are seeing a lot of these rights and actions slide backward, slide mm -hmm. further into uh, statutes and laws that actively oppress, actively discriminate, and will actively uh, affect the well-being of uh, members of these communities, even lawyers from these communities, because they will lose faith in the system that they've sworn to uphold when they passed the bar exam. So what do we do to create accountability? It is a complicated question. Um, I am a big fan of, uh, so there's there's all sorts of accountability, right? There's personal accountability, there's systemic accountability, there's structural accountability, there's uh, all of these things and all of them need to be taken into account. There are sort of metrics and goalposts you can use to establish what's working, what's not. Engage in surveys, engage in data collection, measure it over time. I can tell you one of the reasons we went, uh, we at the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, which is a very long phrase that I have to say way too often. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons we uh, worked with the justices of the Massachusetts Supreme Court to implement the rule that's now uh, all lawyers are required to complete that demographic survey annually is so that we can not just measure this information once, but so that we can measure it over time, so that we can see are the population, I mentioned earlier that 2% of lawyers in Massachusetts identified as Black and 2% identified as Hispanic. Are we going to see that number go up, go down, or stay stagnant? Um, mm -hmm. if, it, if it either goes down or stays stagnant, we're not doing our job right. Um, and so that is a measure of accountability because it shows us what is and isn't working. Um, so that's at the sort of high demographic level. At the individual level, I like to empower people early on in a relationship. I say, tell me if I screw something up. Tell me if I hurt you. I promise I will do my best not to be defensive and hear you and hear what the impact to you was and try to be better in the future. 
Um, and then I have to live up to that promise. Um, and that takes a lot of work. A lot of very, very well-meaning white people, when they are confronted with their own actions that cause harm, their immediate response is to become defensive, to say, I'm not a racist. A racist is a member of the Ku Klux Klan who believes that Black people should be lynched. I'm not that, therefore I am not a racist. Um, you and I, I'm sure, could talk days about the difference between noun, racist, verb, racism. Um, and one of the key lessons for those who are starting on this journey is remembering that we all commit acts that perpetuate bias. It is the nature of the system we are in. So we always have to recognize that if we've done something, again, back to impact over intent, if we do something and someone tells us it harms them, listen, don't say, I, I didn't mean that, I didn't, it's not what I planned. I, I'm not like those bad racists. I'm a good white person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, it's about saying, I'll try to do better. Um, and I'm sorry, I caused that harm. Mm -hmm. Very, very nitpicky language, but one that frustrates me. I like, you're so close. There's so many people say, I'm sorry if, mm -hmm. I'm sorry if that caused you harm. I'm sorry if you were offended. There is no if. If someone's told you they were harmed, they were offended, it's not, I'm sorry if you were offended. It's, I'm sorry I offended you. Take mm -hmm. that accountability into yourself. You did a thing, it caused a response. Whether you believe that response is unreasonable or not has nothing to do with the equation. The response happened and you caused it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I like to do it. And I am guilty of this. I am an active DEI practitioner. I call, I get things wrong. I cause people harm. When people call me out, I say, I'm sorry, I did that. I will try not to do it again. Absolutely. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but I think we're going to have to wrap up. We only have a few more minutes and I'm thinking, um, I think we went over really <laughs> a lot around some of the deeper issues and the and actually the deeper conversations that need to be had around this for the policy and the structural changes and um so i just really really want to thank you for being on our on the podcast today um any final words before we wrap up yeah i just go back to not about us without us who are you inviting into the room to be part of the conversation and how are you compensating them or recognizing them for taking time out of their busy lives to do so. Um, that's, I think, in a lot of ways, the, the way forward if you're trying to start enacting processes and systems of change. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. And thank you, Tanessa. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Wellbeing Committee and the New Mexico Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Gil Flores. The views of the presenters are that of their own and are not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.